This fall, we've been asking the question, where is our place in this world? And the answer to that has been that our place in this world is to be different. That in fact, the biblical term for this is that we are called to be holy in this world. As the Apostle Paul, Peter put it, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. In other words, God's plan is to have a people who are in the world but different than the world, so that they might change the world. The church was never intended to harmonize with culture, but intended, in fact, to give culture an alternative approach, that we would give the alternative of life to death, of righteousness from sin, of hope where there is despair. God's people are to be unique and different in their perspective of things. But this isn't always the case. In fact, just this month, uh, the United Methodist Church has continued their pursuit of some teachings that are not found in the Bible. And as one of their bishops, Bishop uh, Bridgeforth, was giving the reason for this, this is what he said about the changes. He said, these changes allowed the denomination to align itself more with the mainstream of our country. To align itself more with the mainstream of our country. God never intended for His people to be aligned with this world and its way of thinking and its behaviors. In fact, Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The only hope for this sinful world is for us to be God's holy church. And so this fall we have been looking into the different ways that we see things because we are in Christ. We are considering a whole, we are offering the world a holy alternative. For example, we have a different perspective on things like possessions and a different perspective on our citizenship and different perspective even on pleasures. And today we're going to talk about how we give the world a different perspective on morality. We're going to shine the light on God's word of God's word on sin. You see a holy church is to take sin seriously. And this invites our world to do the same. This is, I believe, the most grace-filled thing we can do for our world is to show them what sin is because it's not until we see sin for the awful thing that it is that we will see the greatness of the Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let's begin with this fundamental question, and that is, What is morality? Where does morality come from? Most societies have some kind of basis that these things are good and these things are bad, but who comes up with all of that? So let's think a little bit about the source of morality. One source of morality is that morality comes from within us, comes from humanity. And there are many different sources of this kind of of morality. For example, some believe that it is the pleasures that teach us what is good. 
the evolutionist would come along and say to us that we have been developed in such a way that when we experience good in something, a pleasure, then that must be good. If we experience pain, then that must be bad. And so we have come to understand good and bad on the basis of our pleasure. In other words, if it feels good, it must be right. That's been the basis of many a song, hasn't it? If it feels good, it must be right. But human history also teaches us that there is another source of morality, and that is might. Throughout human history, it's been those who have been the strongest who have imposed their morality on the rest. Uh, whether it be in a democracy or whether it be under the dominion of some kind of emperor. Whoever is the strongest gets to decide who's right. The majority rules. And so by democratic vote, we decide what is moral and what is not. Or tyrannical rulers enforce their brand of morality at the end of a gun barrel. But in this case, whoever is strongest gets to determine who's right. But for those who are more philosophically bent, more mentally bent, they don't believe that morality is found in the pleasure room, nor do they believe it's found on the battlefield. For them, they believe that morality is found in the halls of academia. These people believe that morality comes from our mind. And it is reasoned that morality is doing what is best for the majority. And then we've got all kinds of discussion about what is best and who are the majority. Increasingly, though, in our current culture, morality is determined not by its effects and actions' effects on people, but rather the actions' effects on our planet. And so things are moral or not moral depending upon how they interact with, with nature. But ultimately, academic discussions typically devolve into saying that morality is nothing but a figment of human imagination. That morality is a way that highly developed apes have come to impress their will upon others. That, in fact, there is no morality, that we simply act by instinct, just like the animals, and there is no particular thing that's good or bad. There is no such thing as morality. There's just actions. And you can tell just by this brief survey of how our world comes to think about this concept of morality that there's opportunities, in fact, limitless opportunities for confusion and for conflict. And this is one of the reasons we find our world in the state in which it's at, is people come at this question of morality from all kinds of different angles. But this morning, I would suggest there's another way of coming to this idea of morality. And that is to believe that it comes from a source outside of ourselves. In fact, outside of our creation, it comes from the Creator Himself. And in fact, the biblical account describes God right from the beginning as being a moral creature. When God creates things, He creates it and He says, that's good. He creates it, and he says, that's good. He creates it, and he says, that's very good. He evaluates his creation, and he says, that, that's not good. Here is a God who judges things based upon 
moral criteria. There in the garden with Adam and Eve, what he does is he plants a tree that causes it to grow that is going to be the basis upon which humanity understands the difference between good and evil. Right from the very beginning, God is a moral being. In Genesis chapter 1, He blesses humanity. And after humanity sins, He curses humanity. In other words, God is not only the one who develops morality, but then He holds humanity accountable for submitting to that morality. And so the biblical record shows that God is the source of our morality. The Apostle Paul contrasts these two sources of morality in this famous verse in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 when he says, Do not be conformed to this world. There is a, a form that's in this world. It is the world's description of what is right and wrong. He says, Don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Three words that define morality. And they're all found within the Word of God. The will of God is what describes what is good. It describes what is acceptable and what is perfect. And the role of God's people is to shine the light on the fact that God is the only reliable source of morality. That morality, the concepts of right and wrong, good and evil come from Him and He is not only the creator of those because He's the creator, but He is going to be the judge of how we have responded to those as well. Our world understands that there, is, there are societal problems everywhere. Our world understands that individually we struggle with all kinds of dysfunctions. And how does our world solve that? The way our world solves the dysfunctions of human existence is by taking the problem to the psychiatrist and to the sociologist. Because after all, if morality came from within us and it's not serving us well, then we need to go to humans to understand how to get this thing right. But it is here as God's people that we have something unique to offer the world. We have a holy perspective on morality. We believe that morality comes from God. And as it has come from God, if it isn't acting properly in my life or in my society or in my family, then I need to take that problem to God. And as I learn more about this, what I find is the more I learn about sin, the more I learn about the nature of God, the more I understand why things are in the mess that they're in. And so we as God's people have a unique perspective to offer our world on morality. Now to understand this issue of morality, the scripture doesn't call it morality. It calls it sin. And so we need to think a little bit this morning about what sin is. And basically the scripture summarizes the concept of sin in 1 John 3 and verse 4 with these words. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so sin is not doing what the law requires. In fact, Jesus uses this same term in 
Matthew chapter 7, when he is talking about the day of judgment, there are going to be people who stand before them, him, and he is going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness. Throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament, sin is often described as lawless deeds. And so to sin is to violate, to go against law, not doing what the law requires. And there are several words in the New Testament that illustrate this concept for us. And I'd like to go a few, a few through a few of them with you. The first one is that this word that talks about going astray. For example, <clears throat> Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 is talking about false teachers who are causing people to go the wrong way. And he says, they forsake the right way and they have gone astray. So the idea of sinning is that you're going astray from the way in which you're supposed to walk. This is the same word that God used to describe the children of Israel in the wilderness, both in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 10. He said of his people, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So to sin is to have the way of God and to go astray from the way of God. You can see this is a picture of someone who is acting according to a lawless path. In addition, there's another word that's often used to describe sin, and it's a word that means to miss the mark. It's a very common word in the New Testament. For example, when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 23 that we have all sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, that's this word. And it means to miss the mark. And it comes from archery. And the idea is that the mark is God's revealed will. And whenever we miss God's revealed will, what we have done is we have sinned. And it brings all types of terrible consequences into our life and into our world. I was reading recently from Ken Williver. Uh, he was reporting about an eight-year-old little girl by the name of Ariana who was playing in her backyard when an arrow came flying over the fence, struck her through her lung, her stomach, and then her liver. She had to have long surgery just to even live. And they discovered that the reason that happened is because one of the neighbor boys missed his target, and it just happened to hit her. The target is God's revealed will. The reason we have targets is so that we might increase our skill and so that we might not harm others. That's the reason for targets. They help us get better and they help us be safe. And God's law is about teaching us to be the very best people we can be and keeps us from harming one another. Sin is when we act apart from that will, in contradiction to that will, and without authorization from that will. But in addition, this, there's a word in the, in the New Testament that talks about doing what is wrong or being unrighteous or ungodly. You see, the word unrighteous means there's a right way and you're not on that. Unrighteous or to grow, go wrong. 
this is the word that Paul used to the Corinthians. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Paul says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What does it take to be in the kingdom of God? It means that we live under His rule. But when we are unrighteous, we are living outside of that rule. We are not in the kingdom of God. And so this word describes doing what is wrong or being unrighteous. Another word in the New Testament is simply the word disobedience. And disobedience is the idea that you have some kind of statement you are to obey, some kind of law, and you choose to rebel against it and disobey. And another one is this word often found, transgression. And it, it describes the fact that the, what the law of God does is it sets limits on human thought and activity. And what sin is, is it's going outside of those limits. It's transgressing the limits that God has given humanity to live in. Now, what I hope these have all done for us is given us a deeper illustration and understanding of what sin is. Sin is having the way of God, the law of God, the order of God, the fence of God, and going beyond it and going outside of it and acting without authority from it. Sin is, as the verse there says, is lawlessness. Now, if sin is lawlessness, if sin is violating the law of God, we need to ask this question. Where has God revealed to us his law? If sin is violating the law, where has he revealed his law? And the Bible says that he reveals his law in two ways to humanity. First, through creation, and secondly, through Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, Paul argues that every person is responsible before God because God has revealed himself through creation. Listen to this. Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. How can God judge people for unrighteousness if he hasn't revealed himself to them? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature has been clearly perceived by the things that were created, perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, there are some laws that apply equally to all people at all times. And God has made that clear through creation. It's always been wrong to murder. It's always been long to, wrong to lie and to covet and to commit adultery. These things have always been wrong in every society of man because God has revealed it through creation itself. 
And that's why all have sinned. That's why all are without excuse, Paul says. Because what they should have been able to know about God and his nature and his will was revealed in creation, but they chose to ignore it and live, as he says, in their own ungodliness and unrighteous way. But first of all, Scripture says that God has revealed his will to us through creation. But secondly, and more specifically, God has revealed his will to us through Scripture. And we know that the Scripture comes from God because it has been validated time and time again through the miracles of God. So we have God's validated word given to us in Scripture. And some of these laws were intended for a specific people at a specific place at a specific time, like the law of Moses that was intended for the Israelites. But then there are other laws of God revealed in Scripture that are intended for all people at all time. As Jesus would say after his resurrection, telling his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations, to everybody, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded them to do. And so whenever we ignore God's law, whether it is revealed in creation or whether it is revealed through the scripture, whenever we ignore it or violate God's law, that is sin. Now that may not be too new for a lot of us here, but I think it's important for us to remember why it's sin. It's sin because God is the one who is the giver of morality. He's the one who determines what is right and wrong. And God has given us his law so that we might know what is right and wrong. And when we choose to, uh, to swerve away from, to divert from that law, we sin. And so the question I want to ask now is why is that so bad? Why is sin so bad? Sin is bad not because it is a violation of some impersonal laws that are written in some dusty book somewhere. That's not why it's bad. Sin is so bad because it is against the creator himself. Jack Cottrell put it in a powerful way. Let me read it to you. He said, we cannot separate God's law from God himself. Thus to commit sin is not just to break some impersonal, arbitrary rule, but rather it is rebellion against God personally. To break God's law is an insult to God, a blow against God, a slap in His face, a contradiction to His very nature. No matter which arrows of sin we launch, whether it be one or many, they all ultimately come to rest in the heart of God. That's what makes sin so bad, is it is a personal affront and insult to God. Sproul put it this way, sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one to whom we owe everything. Have you ever considered, he asked, how deep, deeper considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin. That what we are saying to our Creator when we disobey Him is this, God, your law is not good. Your judge, my judgment is better than yours. 
Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. And I have the right to do what I want to do, and I am not going to do what you commanded me. You see, the most tragic thing about sin is not just what it does to the human soul and not just how it destroys human relationships. The most terrible thing about sin is that it is against God. I thought about spending some time and talking about the consequences of sin and hell and all of the terribleness of, of separation from God and all of the grief that comes from regret that we didn't obey God in eternity. And I thought about going through all of that, which we typically do when we talk about sin. But I wanted us to hear that the most fundamental problem with sin is that it is against God. This is what David understood when he himself had murdered somebody and had committed adultery and he comes before God to talk about it. He says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood that the most terrifying thing about sin is not even that somebody was murdered or somebody was abused. The most terrible thing about sin is that it was against God who didn't want any of those things in the first place. Sin is so much more than just making a few mistakes where I feel bad about myself, I feel like I've let myself down. I feel like I've let my family down. You hear people say things like that. I tell you, the most terrible thing about sin is that we've let God down. And it has been an insult to him who has created us. To the extent that our sorrow over sin is only about ourselves, we will have little ability to turn from it. We say, oh, I, I sure am sorry about sin. It sure has hurt my life. It hurt my family. Well, yes, sin does that. But Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about a, a worldly sorrow. And what a worldly sorrow is, is it is a sorrow that is focused upon self. And as long as I'm focused upon self, I will either crumble over my own self-hatred or I will decide for my own benefit, I'll just quit thinking about it. But a godly sorrow, it's found in the Word, it is a sorrow before God, is one that understands that what sin is is something that I have done against God. And a godly sorrow takes me to the one who can actually do something about it. He can forgive me for it, and He can accept me into His relationship with Him. And I can be free from the guilt of that that has destroyed me. I was listening to Alistair Begg the other day, and he was thinking about how in the Bible, whenever the gospel was taught, people had these big changes in their life. And throughout church history, whenever God's message was heard, people were changed. They were brought into sorrow and grief. They, they cried. They wept. They changed their lives. And he asked the question, why isn't this happening today? And he laid, to some extent, the reason for it at the feet of the pulpit. And he said, 
What we are seeing is that people wander from church to church looking for a good time without being fundamentally different from the world. Part of the reason this happens is because we do not preach the law of God, which pierces the sinner's armor and shows them the need for a Savior because it confronts them with the nature of their sin. I wonder if there might be truth into it. We just don't think about sin and how it is a violation of God's great character. In fact, in some churches, it seems the goal is we want you to come in happy, we want you to leave happy, and in between, we just want you to be happy. And I just wonder what Isaiah must have thought when he had the opportunity to go into the worship service before the throne room of God. And as he there witnessed that worship, he heard the angels declare the nature of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he fell on his face and he said, I am undone. I am broken apart. I am a sinful man. I have sinful lips. There is something about being confronted with the true character of God that makes humanity see sin. And that's what we are asking people to do. You see, when we ask people to consider morality, we're not saying, hey, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. You, no, don't do this. You do more of that. We're not just talking about actions and attitudes. What we're asking people to do is come and stand before God to understand Him in all of His holiness and righteousness and justice and live the way He teaches you because of who He is. You see, when we ask people, and we strive to be people of righteousness, it's because we've come to know who God is. And the reason why sin is such a terrible thing is because it is in contradiction to the character of God. We're living a lie is when we, when we sin. Phyllis McGinley wrote a poem. It's just as true today as when she wrote it nearly 60 years ago. There's a poem about a preacher by the name of Reverend Dr. Harcourt. And this is what she wrote about it. The Reverend Dr. Harcourt, folks agree, nodding their heads in solid satisfaction, is just the man for this community, tall, young, urbane, but capable of action. He pleases where he serves. He marshals out the young crowd and he lacks any trace of clerical, clerical unction. He cheers on the Kiwanis and the Eagle Scouts. He is popular in every public function. And in the pulpit, eloquently he speaks on diverse matters of both wit and clarity, art, education, God, and early Greeks, psychiatry and St. Paul and true Christian charity, vestry repairs that shortly must begin. All things... But sin, he rarely mentions sin. When there is no sin, there is no need for a Savior. The reason that sin is so bad is because it is against God. Think about that young man that was in that pigsty in Luke chapter 15, who left his father, went away, do you see it? And he went to a far land. 
And he began to live in a sinful, riotous, drunkenness way, spending his money in all kinds of sexuality and alcohol. Founds himself in the pigsty, trying to eat what pigs eat. What was he so miserable about? What did he so grieve about? Did he mourn what he lost? Or did he mourn what he did? When you read the text, you find that he mourned what he did. And when he came to himself, this is what he said. Listen, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And I am no longer worthy to be your son. He understood what sin was. It's a sin against God. And he left the father saying, give me, give me. And he came back to the father praying, please make me. Make me even like one of your servants. That's what sin does. Sin properly understood drives us back to the father who can, as the Luke father does, receives his son back, provides all that he needs again, and makes him his child. I must admit that when I sat down to write this sermon, it didn't go where I thought it would go. But I pray that it goes to the place that God wants it to go. And where I'd like for it to go is for us, God's people, to see sin for what it really is. For us to take sin as seriously as we should because the world needs an example of somebody who does. That's our place in the world. After all, Jesus did not come into this world to present himself as a philosopher or a moralist or a politician or a doctor or even an environmentalist. He came into this world to be a savior. As the angel said to Joseph, his father, he said, you shall, name his, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said, the son of man has not come to, Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what God sees in humanity. He sees sinners who have wandered away. And the whole reason that Jesus came is so that he might call us back. And if you're here this morning and you know what sin has done to your life, the worst thing that it's done is that it has insulted God and has separated you eternally from his presence. And this is the day to take it seriously. Don't listen to the world in which it says it's no big deal. You know... Being righteous is not about just having a happy family and having a good place to work and going on some fun vacations and having a great retirement. There's a lot of people in hell that are going to have done all of those things. What salvation is, is about coming to Jesus and trusting in him to forgive us our sins because that's our big problem. The big problem is Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I admit that I am one. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to the gospel, we'd love for you to come to Jesus. Come today.